And then this morning, if you will go ahead after you pass the basket, grab your Bible if you brought one or whatever electronic device you use to access the scriptures and find your way to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26 this morning. So we're in our fourth week of a, of a journey through the book of Philippians, which we're entitling Transcend. And that means that it's the concept of what we're learning from the book of Philippians and what Paul writes is that there's the capacity when you follow Jesus to not live in denial of the challenges of life, but literally to be able to get beyond them or above them in our lives. And Paul demonstrates that. And so uh, this morning we'll kind of look at the next installment. If you weren't here last week, John Looney did a great job of the next passage in talking about how God works, kind of helping us live beyond what we expect in terms of our circumstances. So this week, uh, just to, before we jump into the passage, again, some background. Sometimes we forget context is super important when we're looking in, in the Bible because we need to understand who this was written to first and why it was written. Then we understand why it's written to us. So Paul is writing to a group of people that he has deep relationship with. He loves them. He was there when the church in Philippi started. He had amazing experience of God's power showing up in his life. But he also has this connection with the church at Philippi, that he's experiencing personal persecution in his life to the depth where he's writing from prison. And he also connects with them because they're under Roman, the Roman government and they're being persecuted. So he's writing with this understanding that there's a different way to look at our lives even when life is not what we would want it to be. And so because of that, Paul talks about joy and he encourages them. And so today we're going to talk about this really an underlying question that Paul's writing that's a demonstration from his life. And that's the question for us. And that is, is Jesus everything? And what, what I mean by that and what Paul is saying in, in what we'll look in this passage is that is he the all in all in my life? In other words, is he the reason I get up in the morning, the reason I have a job? He's the reason that I live. Everything is through the lens of what Jesus would want for my life, not for myself. And we, most of us say, well, yeah, sure. I, I, I pray to prayer and I go to church and I give and I serve sometimes and I'm a good Christian. But that's not the question that we're asking. The question is, is have you, have you uh, surrendered yourself to the point where Jesus really is everything? Let's put it in this way. So um, sometimes we, we, we will say that Jesus is everything, but really the way we live our lives, Jesus is just a thing. He's additional. He's just kind of added on. He's kind of like seasoning that you add on to make something have a little bit more flavor. Or, or put it this way, it's like anybody like me, I know this is, this is kind of the, the way I've, I've lived my life and, and probably shouldn't, but... Uh, when I, when I left for college, my mom, her, her only gift to me, after, other than, you know, helping with some tuition and things, my mom and dad, her gift to me was a multivitamin. Because she saw the way I ate, and she goes, if nothing else, please, every day, take one of these. And in my mind, I'm thinking, if I take a multivitamin, I can live any way I want to live. I can eat any food I want to live. I don't, have, or eat, I don't have to exercise. Why? Because I have the multivitamin to cover a multitude of sins, right? Anybody like me? That's why we take, yeah. Sometimes Jesus becomes that to us. It's like, I'm just going to add him onto the top, and he's just going to make everything a little bit better, but I'm not going to give him everything. I'm not going to surrender. He's not going to be the, the heartbeat of my life. He's just going to make my life just a little bit better. See, I think when we, when we make that decision, what we, what we miss out on is there's a dimension of life that God created us to live that we can never get to. There's a perspective that we have when we look at life that we can't see unless Jesus is everything. It's almost that Paul in his life, and if you know Paul's story, he sold out for Jesus. He was on the opposing team, and then he joins Jesus' team. And it says, like, God gives him these glasses that he can see things that other people can't see. He has a perspective on life that some of us lack, and because of that, we're not able to live the fullness of what God has purpose for our lives. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that. What does it look like when Jesus actually becomes everything in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, let me go ahead. I'm going to read verse 19 down to verse 26. This is Philippians chapter 1. 
So Paul goes on, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be uh, at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet which, I, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my, my coming to you again. So we're going to stop there. I want you just... Sometimes if you've read that passage or you've heard that famous verse where Paul says to me, you know, to live as Christ, to die is game. We just got, yeah, I've heard it, I've heard it. Just pause for a moment. Paul is not talking about suicide here, so we can make that clear. But, but do you understand what Paul, what's going on? Paul's having a dialogue about whether he's going to die or live as though it's his choice. He's making it sound like, am I going to have hamburgers or am I going to have fried chicken? Seriously. He's having this dialogue, which is kind of crazy. I, we don't fully know what, how Paul was having this kind of idea that somehow there was a point, point where he was, could almost choose whether he was going to die and go be with Jesus or he was going to live on and remain with people on earth. I don't know how that all worked, but it gives him this amazing perspective to understand life in a way that we have to see through the lens of what Paul is looking at. And that's why I wanted to walk through seven things out of this passage that give you and I what it looks like when Jesus is everything in our life. It's a, a perspective change. So look at verse 19. The first thing is this, that we choose to believe instead of doubt. This is what happens when Jesus is everything to us. He's the one that we live for. So in verse 19, Paul says, says this, this will turn out for my deliverance. What's Paul talking about? What's this? Remember, he's in prison. And if you go back a few verses, not only is he in prison, but some of his rivals are now out, out telling people about Jesus just to stir up, like pushback against the gospel and against the church and against Paul. So not only is he in prison for doing the right thing, but now he's got people outside who are trying to make things worse for him while he's inside. And Paul says this amazing thing in faith, because he can see and he's believing that even in the worst circumstances of my life, God is going to use this for my deliverance. How in the world can you say that? How in the world can you say that when you're sitting in prison and he's sitting in a Roman prison and usually when you were someone who was perceived to be against the Roman government, Prison was the precursor to execution. So he's staring death in the face and says, God's going to use this for my deliverance. How can he say that? Because he has a deep trust in God and he believes instead of doubting. He believes that God is in the middle of this and because of that, God is going to do what we can't do. Wouldn't it be amazing if every day of your life you had that kind of perspective? Because I know all of us, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, all of us doubt every single day of our life. But what if you actually were believing that God was going to do something beyond what you could do? It would change the way you actually make decisions. You would, you would do life differently. Let me just tell you a little story, and then I'll show you some pictures. But one of my good friends, uh, his name is Pastor Michael Rathumio, and he's from Uganda. He's a Ugandan pastor. Amazing guy. About 15 years or so ago, he, he was in the capital of Uganda, which is Kampala, and the Lord put on his heart to start a church for college students. Now, there's a university called Makere University in, in Kampala, which is kind of the equivalent of like the Harvard of Africa. So it's kind of the premier school. So, so, so literally, students from all over Africa will go to McCary University. And so there's about forty to 50,000 students there. 
but he wanted to reach these students because he knew these are the influencers of, for the future of Africa. And so the Lord put it on his heart. So he literally like started going from dorm to dorm and, and some students got saved and then they would go in teams and, and he would go just to reach students. Well, as the numbers started growing, they were kind of meeting wherever they could meet. Uh, the dynamic in Uganda is a little bit different when it comes to a building and, and a piece of property. The, the government doesn't acknowledge you as, as a church unless you own property and you have a church building. You're not a real church. And, of course, that translates into society, too. Culture, in fact, legally, according to the Anglican Church, which is the, the kind of the mother church in Uganda, if you're not married in a church building, they don't necessarily acknowledge your wedding, your marriage, because it's so official when it's in a church building. So he, he understanding this, as he, the students are coming to know Christ and the numbers are growing, they don't have property, they don't have a building. And he knows for, for, to reach more students, they've got to have that. He knows that he doesn't have to have that to be the church, but to be effective in Uganda, he needed that. So he and about five or six of the students, some of his leaders now, they, they went to a piece of property that was close to, to the, the university. And he just felt like the Lord said, I'm giving you this land. And so they, they went and they prayed and they literally, and he's telling me the story, they lay like face down on the land and they dug their hands into it. And it must have looked really strange. Five or six people laying on the ground digging and their faces, are, and they're just praying and praying and praying. And so they did that ongoingly. And as they, they did that, they inquired on who owned the land. And they found out that the land was owned by a Muslim. And at first he was like, oh, no, I'm sure that he's not going to want to sell his land to the other team, you know. And so he's thinking, okay, so but we're going to pray because I believe God said this is our land. So they kept praying and they kept praying and they kept praying. And eventually the, the Muslim man said, I'll sell the property to you. And he sells it to him, and this is the great thing, is that the church continues to grow, and, and Pastor Mike keeps reaching more students and more students, and they build a building on it. And in fact, they started by meeting in a tent, because that's all they could afford, and so they had a tent that had, could seat like 600 people, but they outgrew the tent, and then in Uganda, when storms kicked up, the tent would flap, and it was crazy, and it, just, it was starting to break down. So then they built a building, and now, so 15 years later, they are reaching literally thousands of college students. Take a look at these pictures. This is their church building. So you can see it's huge. And, and they're literally every weekend, they, there are thousands of students that come to this church. Amazing ministry. And a lot of these students are from all over Africa. So the beautiful thing is they come to McCary University, they get a great, great education, and then they find Jesus. And they go back to their country, which is just amazing. In fact, you want to talk about a worship night? When we were in Uganda, we had a worship night. Our worship light night this last Wednesday lasted two hours and 20 minutes. And some people were like, thought, oh, that's really long. No, no, no. In Africa, we, their worship night lasted four and a half hours in non-air conditioned, 85 degree with 90% humidity. Danny talked about sweat. There's a whole other category of sweat in Uganda. But just that, just, and this is all a result of what? Somebody who believes that God can do what we can't do. He believed that God wanted him, this was his land, so he prayed with faith, and look at what God has done. God is reaching thousands of students there. You're going to see a lot of pictures of people today, by the way. Second thing, look at verse 20. Jesus is everything when we choose courage instead of fear. So Paul says in verse 20, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage. Courage is the difference between so much of what God ends up doing in our life and what becomes unaccomplished because we don't have courage. It is never about the ability of God to do what God desires to do in our life. It's about our ability to have the courage to step out and see God do it. Paul, talk about courage, this guy's facing death. And what's great is every time Paul gets out of prison, he goes right back to doing what he was doing before. 
even though he knows his life is on the line. He's going to tell people about Jesus. Why? Because he understands the depth of God's grace in his life and what Jesus has done for him. What if your life wasn't limited by fear? Because probably 90% of us in this room make decisions every day based on the fact that we're afraid of what might happen, what might go wrong, what we might miss out on. So fear dominates us. But you and I don't realize that there are people that have gone before us in the church and in our culture that who, who had courage, and it's because of their courage you and I get to have the benefit of it. So we have, as a church, we have the benefit of Paul's courage years ago to spread the gospel and to the point where actually Paul did lose his life for Jesus. But because Paul had courage, there are people who heard Christ that whether you know it or not, go back. They are your spiritual ancestors. And because they knew Jesus 2,000 years ago, we know Jesus. Why? Because somebody had courage. There are a lot of people that get credit for this, but I think one that, that needs to have credit for this is that you and I don't know this, but, but we would probably be under a Confederate flag as a country right now, except for a couple of people, and one of them is Ulysses S. Grant, an amazing general. Now, I'm not a historian, and some of you probably will know more about Grant than I do, but I, I, I've studied enough to know. This guy was really interesting, pretty amazing, and, and the one thing that set him apart, really, I think, than anybody else is that the guy had courage. Either, either he was insane or he had courage, one of the two, but either way it worked, okay? So he went, as, uh, he went through West Point, graduated West Point, was, you know, so he was trained for military. He did pretty well in military prior to the Civil War, but he had a problem in his life. He was a drunk. So much so that his drinking affected his ability to lead, and so he actually was relieved of his duties in the military. But then when the Civil War, when in the height of the Civil War, he was pulled in because they knew that even though he was a drunk, the guy knew how to fight. And so they stuck him in front of a charge of a few men, and he won a battle, and so they gave him a little few more men, and he won another battle, and just kept going until he was in charge of the army. And it's amazing. Stories are told about, about this guy. His courage was so incredible that they said that there are three or four horses that are dead by cannonball that he happened to be riding on when they were shot because he never fought from the back. He was the general who fought from the front lines. His, his courage and his kind of his influence and his reputation was so well known that they, this is documented, that there were times where he showed up on the battlefield and not only did the Union soldiers salute him and applaud, but the Confederate soldiers did too. That's incredible, because this guy had more courage than anybody else. That's why we kept winning, because this guy was crazy enough, or had enough courage, that when one horse was killed right underneath him, he would get on another horse to keep fighting the battle. So you and I don't realize that that's one person's courage affects millions of people. Think about that in terms of your life. Maybe you're just waiting because of fear to do something that God's purpose for you to do. And if you had the courage, not only would your life change, but there are thousands, if not millions of people who will live after you that will be a beneficiary of your courage. Paul had courage. And if Jesus is everything, then you and I don't have to worry about fear. See, Paul wasn't afraid to die. And we'll talk about that. If you and I are living every day in fear of death, then we will control everything that God wants to do and we will limit impact in our lives. Third thing, look at verse 20, going on the second part of verse 20, that if Jesus is everything, we live for God's glory, not our own. Paul says, not as always, or now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, we like the first part. We want God to be glorified in our body in life, but we don't want God to be glorified in our body in death. Why? Because we won't be here anymore. 
because it's not about us. It's not, it's not about us. This is one of the biggest issues. Paul got that this whole thing, Jesus had called Paul to follow, or uh, uh, Paul was called to Jesus to follow Jesus. Why? Because it was about making Paul great? No. It was about making Jesus great and what Jesus wanted to do in the lives of people. If we can learn to realize that this is ultimately about what God wants to do through me and not about me being the king of my own life, but about God being God and being glorified and everybody being pointed to him, life becomes so much better when it's no longer about us. It's about other people. It's about what God wants to do. It's about God's glory. And this is how you know that you are glorifying God. Because here's the thing. You will know more about glorifying God in your death than you probably will in your life. And that means you probably won't know it as much because you'll be gone. We lost probably one of the most influential, greatest leaders that the body of Christ has ever seen a couple weeks ago. Billy Graham died at 99. Billy Graham is an amazing man. Do you know they estimated that Billy Graham preached to between 200 and 250 million people in his lifetime? He had a voice. He had a platform. He, he reached people. And millions of people came to Jesus because of this man. But I'll tell you, his influence was even greater than that. I mean, every president, while he was alive, called him to the White House. Every president. Because this man, they looked to him and said, this guy represents who Jesus is supposed to be. And so Billy Graham had influence. But I'll tell you, one of the things that I think brings as much, if not more, glory to God through Billy Graham's life, is his death. And let me tell you why, because I've been doing this ministry thing for a long time, and I've read through the scriptures a lot, but one of the things that Billy Graham has done that a lot of other influential Christian leaders didn't do is that he finished well. He finished well. He died at 99, but you know what we haven't heard about Billy Graham? We didn't, he didn't have a season in his life where, he, where there was infidelity, that there was financial, mis, there was financial wrongdoing, or there was something that he did... Because I'm there were times when Billy Graham separated himself from some of the leaders in the body of Christ to stay true to what Jesus had said is true about his life. It's amazing. But I think the ability for him to actually end well so that everybody had everything. It wasn't like, well, Billy Graham was a great leader, but... And then they kind of... Because if you... This is what's surprising to people. Did you know the majority of leaders in the Bible did not finish well? Go through and try to find the ones that finished well. There's more that finished not so well than did well. But you and I have to see that in a man, in Billy Graham, there's somebody who had this capacity to say that ultimately, it's not about me. And I think that's one of the secrets to Billy Graham's success, is it never was about him. See, when it, if, if a man who's preaching to 200 to 250 million people, you think he has the right to pat himself on the back. I'm reaching a lot of people. I have a great platform. He never did that because the moment he would have done that, it would have become about him. And that's when he would have gotten into trouble. If you and I learn to live our lives not for ourselves, but for the sake of other people and ultimately for the sake of God, we will glorify God and people's lives will be changed, let alone our life will be changed. Billy Graham got that. He understood that. Fourth thing, Jesus is everything when we believe that death is gain instead of loss. Paul says this is the most famous, one of the most famous verses Paul ever wrote. It says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm pretty confident this is true. Most of us do not believe that. We don't. We believe to live is gain, to die is what? It's loss. That's why our lives are spent trying to be safe. 
we try to avoid death at all costs. Now, I'm not saying that we're supposed to have a death wish. I'm not talking about contemplating suicide. What I'm talking about is you and I make decisions every single day to avoid places of danger so that we may not lose our life or lose something else in the process. We make decisions every day. Everything that we do in our culture is about safety. Anybody flown lately? Security? All the things that a pilot has to go through? All that, it's all based for what? So that you don't crash and die. Those are good things. But when that becomes the sole focus of our life is to not die, then we miss out on what Jesus wants to do in our lives. See, because you and I are convinced that this life, and we don't want to believe it, this life is somehow better than the next one. It's not. Paul has this perspective. That's why he's having this dialogue. Listen, it's great here, but if I die, it's going to be gain. It's going to be better. Why? Because all of what this life is about and the struggle and the pain will be over, and I will stand and I will see Jesus, the one who gave everything for me. That has to be gain. But think about that. What what would it be like if my life no longer had that underlying fear of death? Would you live differently? Would you take more risks? I'm not saying go out and be reckless, but I am saying that maybe some of us need a little recklessness in our life because we're so about comfort and safety that we don't want to do anything that actually might be dangerous. But the number one reason that we don't follow Jesus usually is because we're afraid. And I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I had a dialogue between, in, with someone in between services. And, and, and this is just the example. Haiti's the perfect example through our church. When I have conversations about people and going to Haiti, the first and number one thing that comes up is either they're afraid or one of their family members are afraid. So right there, you've just let fear speak to you more than God's speaking to you. Someone came to me in tears between services and said, I think I'm supposed to go to Haiti. And it's, it's as much about, yeah, yay, wow, we're excited. We're really, once someone's going to Haiti. But the decision that they're making is based on, this isn't, it's, it's, it's what God's going to do in them there, but it's also what God's doing to them here to help them understand I don't have to live in fear anymore. Greg Barshaw, who is the head of Connect2, we partnered with in Haiti, was here a number of months ago. And if you remember, he said something that some people, I don't know if they could handle. And as a, as a parent, I was like, ooh, you're right, but man, that hurts. He said, if you think that your child is safer in their bedroom, in your home, under your roof than they are in, in some far-off country trying to reach people from Jesus, then you don't know who God is. Whoa. He's absolutely right. We think that we can create safety. Safety is an illusion. Safety is an illusion. But we're as safe in some far-off country where we consider dangerous than we are living in this place called Simi Valley or Moore Park or wherever you live. Why? Because our life is in Jesus. It's not in the world. It's not in safety. It's in risking and following him. And I know the times that I have risked everything to follow Jesus are the times that are most fulfilling in my life. The times that I've tried to play it safe and be safe are the worst moments in my life. That's when I get in the way of God. So think about what it would be like to remove the fear of death from your life. Would you live differently? Fifth thing, Jesus is everything when we choose life because there's more to live for. So verse 22, Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means more or fruitful labor for me. What is Paul saying? Listen, again, if I die, it's gain. But if I live, that means there's more that God has for me to do. Why is that important? Because I know that so many times we determine when we're done. And it's usually not when we die. We determine before we die when we're done. What do I mean by done? Well, I've done all that. I've served Jesus and 
And I'm not just talking about, there's, I mean, sometimes we think that the sum total of serving Jesus is being a moral person. It's not. That's a byproduct. But I've lived a good life. I've been a good husband or a wife or a parent or an employee. Those are great things. But that's, that's the minimum. That's the transforming work of Jesus in your life. There's much more that God has for you. And we always put a like, kind of marker and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm done. I've done my stuff, and now everybody else can do it. No, 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 no. There's, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. There is no such thing as retirement in the kingdom of God. Did you know that? Retirement is death. It is. And the retirement that Jesus gives is way better than your 401k. Way better. You know why? Because your, your retirement in heaven is not based on the stock market's performance today. And we can let Jesus, and that's why until the last breath that you breathe on this planet, you're not done. You're not done. And sometimes there needs to be adjustments in our life to make sure that we're not done. Because some of us get to a pause in our life and say, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of done. When what God's saying, no, you know what? If you make a couple adjustments in your life, there's still a lot more that I have for you because I'm not done with you yet. Let me show you a picture. This is a, a, a man, amazing guy named Tom White. Let me tell you about Tom. He, in 21 years old, he got into an accident on his motorcycle uh, and severely damaged his left foot. And uh, when he went to the hospital, the first option was the doctor said, we got to take it. we got to amputate your foot. It's in bad shape. You're not going to be able to function with it. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm a runner. He said, if I can't run, I can't live. He said, whatever it takes, I know you want to ampu amputate, but you've got to save my foot because if you don't save my foot, I can't run. So the doctor said, okay. And so they, they went, he went through multiple surgeries. They saved his foot. After about a year, actually, he could actually start to walk. But then after that, he not only started to walk, he started to run. And from about 20, age 22 to 23 to about his mid to late 40s, he ran 26 ultra marathons. That's between 75 and 100 miles on a bad left foot. But when he was like mid 40s, he started to get a lot more pain in his foot. And he realized the more he ran, the more the pain was there. And so he realized if he was going to keep running beyond his mid 40s, he had to do something different. At that time, he saw some reports on different athletes who had, were amputees, and they actually were competing in competitive sports, and they were running ultra marathons and things like that. And he said, if I get rid of my foot, I can run more. So he goes back to the doctor 23 years later and says, I want to get rid of my foot. <laughs> and at the time, when 20, those, those years passed, this was more and more common thing. Yeah, you can, you can have something amputated and still live a very productive life. And so they did. They amputated, you can see. His, uh, his foot. In fact, they had to go up a little higher on the leg to make sure that his prosthetic would fit right. And guess what he's doing? He's running like crazy. Because in his mind, when he got to his mid-40s, he could have thought, you know, man, the pain is too much. I think I'm just going to have to deal with the pain, and it's just, I won't be able to run. And he said, no, there's more. So he made an adjustment, major adjustment. <laughs> he cut off a foot so he could keep running. So what is it in your life that if you were to say, you know what? I'm I might not be able to do everything that I used to do, but there are still things that God wants me to do. I may not be physically able to do what I used to do, but I can still disciple people. I can still be in relationship with people. I can still teach other people. I can still be involved in things. I can still give generously. I can still give of my time. Whatever it is, whatever it is that's limiting you. I'm not even talking about age, because I could be talking about a 25-year-old or an 85-year-old is that God has more, and God has determined. That's why God knows the day you're born. He knows the day you die. He's determined all that. You and I are supposed to run until he says you've crossed the finish line. We don't get to pull up short. We don't get to stop before the finish line. We go until Jesus says, you're done. Billy Graham went to 99, and Jesus said, finally, you're done. 
I want to live to the fullest, to the, to the limit of my life, to, to, to the end of what God has for me. So what is the, the adjustment that God's calling you to make? Then the, the sixth thing, Jesus is everything when we are willing to sacrifice better for best. So Paul says this, verse 23, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part to be with Christ, for that is far better. What is Paul saying? Better for who? Better for him. A better outcome for Paul is just to be done and to go see Jesus. But is that the best? That's a pretty good better, I'd say. But is that the best of what God wants for Paul? No, it's not, because we know that. Because his dialogue is what? Eventually he says, you know what? For me, it's better that I go. For you, it's better that I stay. So what's best is for me to stay. That means that Paul is personally having to make a decision to change or exchange his better life for what is best for God, which means it's not about him anymore. He's having to adjust to live a better life for God because it wasn't about him. And that's a tough question for us living in middle class, overall middle class, kind of suburban United States. Our lives are built on what? better comfort that's why i know i've heard it from everybody that's why we don't live in the san fernando valley i can't stand the traffic gotta move to simi valley until the traffic is here and then you move to moore park and then you move to ventura and then you'll have to move off the coast somewhere right because you can't go any further but that's the concept that we live with live with because we think our life is overall pretty good what if there was a life that was better what if you could exchange your good life for a life that is a whole lot better would you do it that means you have to make a decision Paul was, that's the decision. That's, he said, I'm hard-pressed. There's this tension. If I'm going to give this up, then I, I'm going to give up going to be with Jesus. Why? Because it's going to be better in the end. It's going to be the best of what God wants to do in my life because there's people who still need God to use me to touch their lives. That means you have to make a decision to, to change something. So I'm going to have a proud dad moment, okay? Just go with me for the next couple moments. So you know who this girl is, most of you. That's my daughter, Courtney. I miss her. She's living in Oregon, and uh, I love her still even though she moved to Oregon. So a few years ago, Courtney, we had a dialogue with Courtney about the direction of her life. So Courtney was going to Moore Park. She had graduated high school. She was going to Moore Park College. She was working at a job. And, and we were saying, what do you feel like you want to do? And, and, and so she had always kind of told us she, she wanted to be a missionary eventually someday. And so we started talking, what does that look like? And she said, Dad, and this is a, the thing I know I love about my, my daughter, is that she, she's not a huge academic, but she loves to be involved. She's more of a doer than a learner. So for her to really learn, she has to do. And so, so we started talking about, okay, well, let's look at not just going to typical college, but what if you went somewhere where you're doing hands-on and you're learning at the same time? So we looked at internships around the country. And so we settled in on one in Oregon at a church that I'm really close friends with, the pastor and his wife, and it's a great church. And so she said, we looked at it, and she said, okay, it's a two-year program. I, go, I get a two-year Bible degree, plus I have two years of hands-on ministry in the church and in the community. And so we're like, great, how much does it cost? So... We looked at it, we ran the numbers, and we said, okay, well, it looks like you're going to have to make more money. So Courtney quit school, and she went to work full-time. And she worked full-time for about 16 or 17 months. And this was really interesting, because this was hard, because, you know, you're, you're out of college, you're making a decent amount of money, you're living at home, your expenses are low, she's involved with a church she loves, she's highly involved with our youth, she has friends at church, she's living a really good life in Simi Valley. But she realized this isn't what God had for her, there was more. So she's having to make decisions when she sees her friends buying new things and spending money. She's like, ah, and we're like, no. <laughs> no, if you want to do this, you're going to have to pay the price now. 
And every time we'd have these conversations, these heavy conversations, and finally she saved up enough money for the two years. And so she went off this last August, and she's been having the time of her life. Now here's the cool part. When Courtney was nine years old, she announces to Kim and I, so she says, nine years old, she says, I'm going to be a missionary to Africa someday. We're like, okay, nine years old. And this is what she says, I love this, and I'm going to marry an African man. I'm like, cool. She goes, because I'm going to have black babies. I'm like, well, <laughs> mostly they'll be mostly black, but, you know. So she's making this announcement. Guess where Courtney is today? She's in Kenya. In fact, Kim got a text from her this morning. I'm going to cry, sorry. Courtney said, this is the best day of my life. She said, I just learned five African dances, and I've been dancing all morning long with these kids. She goes, they're amazing. She goes, this is the best day of my life. That whole process started years ago, and Courtney made a decision. There's a better life than the life that I'm living. The comfortable, easy, familiar, friends, church, there's got to be something more, but it's going to cost me, but I'm going to make this decision now so I can live the life that God has for me. She's going to hopefully come back from Kenya. This is a 10-day trip, okay? I'm praying for that. Pray for me. They can get her back on the plane, but I am not, I'm pretty sure she'll probably end back up somewhere in Africa because that's what she knows. That's the life that God has for her. So when you look at your life, are you willing to exchange this good life, this comfortable life, for something that actually might be better? I thank God for Paul, who said the best thing, I mean, he had the best thing for him personally, go see Jesus. I mean, what's better than that? And he said, no, but I'm going to stay, because there's something more that God wants to do in me. There's something even better than even going to see Jesus at this time for me. And he made that decision to stay. And then the final, final thing is this. Jesus is everything when we live for others instead of ourselves. So let me read just kind of a summary of verse 24 to 26 again. Paul writes this. Listen to what he says. So he says, it's far better if he goes to be with Jesus, but verse 24, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what is Paul saying? He's living for others and not himself. I mean, this is going to sound funny, but the most selfish thing Paul could have did is said, I want to go be with Jesus. But he wasn't living for himself. He's living for other people. So he's going to delay his time on earth so he can invest in more people. It wasn't about Paul. It was about other people. Think about this. Is it possible that you and I, in a world that tells you, you got to look out for number one, it has to be about you, you have to get what you can get. If we live the opposite, we actually might be happier. I'm convinced we would be. Because I think Paul understands something that some of us miss. When Jesus is the center of the universe, there's joy and peace and happiness. When we're the center of the universe, there's destruction and evil and depression, right? We all know that because we do it to ourselves. But what if we really made it about other people? What if we shifted and we understood the value of other people and what that looks like in the way that we live our lives? Let me put it in this context. Let me show you a picture of a guy most of you probably have never seen and don't even know who he is, but he has impacted the way we view church and missions today. This man's name is Ralph Winter. Ralph has passed away and gone to be with Jesus. But Ralph Winter was a missionary who started to look at this thing called missions differently than anyone had looked at it before. This is back in the early 1970s. So traditionally, when, you, when missionaries were sent from the United States, they were sent to geographical countries. So if someone wanted to go reach Russians, they were going to go to Russia. If you were going to go reach Chinese people, you are going to go to China. And so it was all based on countries on, based on geography. Well, as he started to travel and he started to research and he started to look at the world around him, he realized 
that within each country, there are multiple ethnicities and multiple people groups that sometimes have different culture and different languages, even though they all might live in Russia, even though they all might live in China. And as he's reading the Bible, he's realizing that throughout Jesus' teachings and even into the book of Acts, there's this phrase that keeps coming up, every tongue, tribe, and nation. Those had nothing to do with geography. They had to do with ethnicity and culture and language. Because in the, in the world today, there's, what, 200 and some odd countries. But you know how many ethnicities there are? You know how many cultures there are? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. That's what the Bible's talking about. It's the word ethne, which is not geography. It's the culture and ethnicity and language of a person. So Ralph Winter made a decision to start promoting missions not based on geography, but based on ethnicity and culture and language. It changed the way we view missions today. You know why? Because this is the beauty of the country that we live in. So because we live in the United States, which is a country built on immigration, people coming to this country, that to reach the world, you don't necessarily have to go to the world. Because the world has come to us. Now forgive me if that upsets you. I'm not trying to make a political statement. Jesus is bringing the world to us. And this is the beauty of when it's not about us anymore. Because I know the tendency in our culture is that we get really prideful about living in the country that we live in, but the majority of us who were born here it had nothing to do with us being born here. Remember? It's getting really quiet in here. We can be proud to be Americans, but not proud, proud to the point where we take credit for the fact that we were born here. That's by God's grace. And we were put on this planet as a country to be a blessing to other nations. Now, I'm all for laws, and I understand that with immigration, but here's the beauty of what happens. When something gets shooken up on the other side of the world, and somebody can no longer live in their country in fear of their life, and they look at the United States and say there's freedom there and there's safety, and they come to our country, the majority of people who come through that, th those means don't know Jesus. And in fact, if you were the reverse and you were to go to their country and try to tell them about Jesus, you could die because it's illegal for anyone to tell someone about Jesus in their country. But they come to our country, and now the biggest barrier, their government, no longer has any influence, and now they're here. They're your coworker. They're your neighbor. They're the person who sits next to you in school. They're the people whose color of skin is different than you, whose language is different than you, whose food is different than you. They're all around you. And that is the most beautiful thing that God has done. Why? Because God has said we are supposed to reach every tongue, tribe, and nation. In Matthew 4, or 24, 14, Jesus actually says, and then the end will come. It's the one thing in Scripture that we actually have an impact on the time frame of Jesus returning, is reaching people. And God has made it easier for our generation than any other generation before us. Why? Because the world is coming to us. If you heard a couple weeks ago, I met a Palestinian. Guess where I met him? in a laundromat in Simi Valley. Does he have a concept who Jesus is? No, not yet. But I'll tell you, when he was where he was before, his understanding of Christianity and Judaism and Islam, because he's, he's Muslim, he, he, these are all competing things, and so he didn't want anything to do with anything else, and now he's in our country. Guess what? He doesn't have to worry about the danger of what he lived in before. Now he has the freedom. Now he has the freedom to hear the gospel. This is an amazing thing, and you'll hear about this in, in week four of Pray Simi when we pray for people groups. Did you know that 20% of the people who live in Simi Valley were not born in this country? 20%. 40% of the people who live in Simi Valley are non-Caucasian, non-white. I love it. That's good news. We should, we should, yeah, not 13 years ago. 
But we should applaud that. Why? Because the world is coming to us. And if our life, like Paul's life, is not about us, then we should not feel threatened. We should not be upset. We should say, this is God's opportunity. This is God's opportunity to bring the world to us so that what? And here's the thing. One of the things, and I'll end with this. You know that one of the largest migrations of people in the United States is foreign exchange students? Did you know that? They come in every year. And did you know that, that they're here for four or five, maybe six years, and they go back to their country? And most of, a lot of them who come from countries that they can't hear the gospel, but when they're here, they have, they, we have a four to six year window to share the gospel with them. What if we actually share the gospel with foreign students? They would go back to their country. In fact, this happened. Kim's parents had a, a, a student that came into their house when we were up in Oregon, and through their, through Kim's parents and a couple of their families that hosted her through her, her four years at George Fox University, she came to Christ, we baptized her, and she went back to her country saved. It's amazing. Did you know that Osama bin Laden was educated in the United States? What if one person was able to get to him and share the gospel? Oh, man, it would have changed history. Think about how many other Osama bin Ladens are in our country right now. And they're trapped in a worldview that doesn't uh, let them understand the grace of God through Jesus, and all they need is someone to come along and show them in flesh and blood who Jesus is. That's the opportunity that God has given to us. That's what it looks like when Jesus is everything. It changes everything about our lives. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to conclude with a point of response. <clears throat> Just with your eyes closed and this thinking of the big picture, one of the things that, that Ralph Winter said that I think really helps us to understand that it isn't about us. He said, until the future of the world is more important than the future of the church, the church has no future. I want you to hear that. He says, until the future of the world is more important than the future of the church, the church will have no future because the future of the church is the world. And I think what's true of our lives, if, if you would agree with me, the fulfillment of our life can never truly happen until our life is no longer about our life. It's about Jesus and about other people. Paul lived for other people. Paul lived for Jesus. And we are the beneficiaries of his faith. And so today, as we I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment, that maybe you're here today and there's a couple things of response. One is that for you coming in the doors today, if you'll be honest with yourself, it wasn't that Jesus was everything. It was that Jesus wasn't even a thing. He really hasn't been someone that you've connected with in your life. And so because of that, you come here, and this seems a little foreign to you, but, but now maybe you're starting to understand that there's another dimension of life and what that looks like that I have yet to experience because I don't really know who Jesus is. But today, you can actually experience through God's presence of his spirit that would come to reside in you that you can know Jesus. And knowing Jesus comes through understanding what he's done for you. In four weeks, we celebrate this, that weekend, Easter weekend, where Jesus, 2,000 years ago, did something that happened in history, but changes history, and that is that Jesus' death on the cross, it's not just folklore, it's not a fairy tale, it's a reality, a historical fact that Jesus died on the cross, and in that death, because he was perfect, he took on all of the sin and failure and brokenness in your life, and he took it on himself as a way of the punishment that had to be given. He took on himself so that we wouldn't have to be punished. Punishment would have been to be separated from God forever. 
but in taking your sin from you. Then Jesus on Sunday rose from the dead, the resurrection, which demonstrated he had power over death, he had power over sin. And if we follow him, then we will experience the same. We will experience life. And if you've never come to a place in your life where you've made that decision, then I want to encourage you when I pray in a moment, you would just, in your own words, you just say, God, I'm here. I know that something's stirring inside of me. And Jesus, I want to give my life over to you. I want you to be everything. I want to give you my sin and my brokenness and my failure. I want to turn away from the way that I used to live and the way I used to think, the way I used to act. And I want to follow the way you want me to live. And then there's others that maybe you're here today and you have, you've kind of put a comma in your journey or you, maybe you've kind of said to God you're done or, or maybe that you haven't, you haven't looked at things through the lens of faith and believing and, you, and doubt has been something that's controlled you and fear and the fear of death and by God's spirit he wants to bring a new way of living, a new way of looking at things. He wants to give you confidence. He wants to give you faith. He wants to give you courage to be able to live out the life that he has for you. And so maybe God's saying to you today there's some adjustments you need to make in your life. There's a better life out there that I want you to live, but it's going to require you that you have to give up something now. There's more life for you to live, and there's some adjustments I want you to make right now for the remainder of your life so that you can continue to see me work in your life. I don't know what that is for each one, but you do, and let God begin to show that to you and help you along that path. Lord Jesus, as we thank you for Paul's life, we thank you that he was willing to give everything for you and even even to forego coming into your presence so that he might remain longer on this planet because you had more to do through him would you allow us lord jesus to see that that there's more that you want us to do lord there's more that you want to do in us there's more of your grace and your mercy that you want us to experience and more that you want us to do in touching the lives of people around us so lord give us the lens to see our lives differently this week so that lord we might be able to live the life that you created us to live Lord, help us to make you foundational, not additional. And help that, Lord, everything that we do would be ultimately about you and for you. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.